Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. As we gear up for award season, there's no better time to join us. By becoming a Vanity Fair subscriber, you'll gain exclusive access to our in-depth coverage of film, television, and the best of Hollywood. And that's just the beginning. Vanity Fair takes you inside the worlds of entertainment, culture, politics, and scandal, bringing you iconic images, era-defining stories, and much more. Get 15% off a year of digital access to Vanity Fair by visiting VanityFair.com and using promo code POD15 at checkout. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a full year of insights and exclusive digital access. Subscribe now. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich. I'm back, and I'm here uh, for right now just with Richard Lawson. Hello. Uh, we're recording this episode in a strange way this week uh, because I'm in New York City, which is very exciting for me. It's the first time back since the pandemic, um, and it meant I got to see West Side Story at the um, not at the premiere where Steven Spielberg was, a couple blocks downtown, but still very exciting. Uh, Richard, you've seen it too, so we'll talk about West Side Story, um, the Gotham Awards, and your top ten list, which are out this week, and then very soon after, you'll hear from David and Rebecca, David Camfield and Rebecca Ford, um, who talked about Nightmare Alley, which. As we record this, Richard, you and I are seeing it later. They have seen it. The embargo will lift. There's a lot of time shifting happening. But West Side Story and Nightmare Alley are kind of the two last big pieces of award season. So it's a particularly exciting week. Are you, are you feeling the, the Oscar hype, Richard? Oh, yeah. I mean, couldn't West Side Story be called Nightmare Alley in some sense? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that um, alley where they're like swinging the paint cans at the sharks. It's right, pretty exactly. Intense. Uh, yeah, no, West Side Story, you know, uh, there's a funny, I won't spoil, but there's a funny irony about seeing that movie at, at Lincoln Center like we did or in that general area to that movie. But it just felt, it just, it, it, it has a sense of occasion about it in a way that uh, it, that I've been kind of missing for part of this season. Uh, and I hope that seeing Nightmare Alley with you tonight um, recreates that, that same sensation of something big and splashy and I dare say studio commercial kind of thing um, to, to supplement all of the smaller, artier stuff that I've been enjoying this fall so far. Yeah, something's coming, something's good, you might even say. <laughs> exactly. Thank you for laughing. Um, before we get too deep into those, though, I do want to say we've got two interviews at the end of the show as well. And kind of speaking of smaller and artier, honestly, so um, our colleague Chris Murphy talked to Halle Berry about her directorial debut, Bruised, which will be on Netflix. And I talked to Gabby Hoffman, who is in Come On, Come On, which is kind of one of my favorite of the smaller movies that's been out this fall. So we're running the gamut here this week on Little Gold Men. Um, but Richard, I, I think I want to stay West Side Story for last. Um, and let's talk about the Gotham Awards, which happened on Monday night as West Side Story was premiered in New York City. Um, and you were there, which is why we didn't see West Side Story together. So um, how were the Gothams? Uh, they were good. I mean, it was surreal to be, not that I go to many award shows themselves. I talk about them a lot, but I don't <laughs> go to a lot of them. Um, it, but it was it was kind of wonderful to be back in a room with lots of colleagues and 
people I'm a fan of. Um, I sat at the table with Ryosuke Hamaguchi, who made Drive My Car, which is a great movie. He also made Wheel of uh, Fortune and Fantasy, which is also great this year. And he won, and we all got to stand, everyone at the table stood up and clapped, and it just, it felt very formal and exciting uh, in a way that, you know, we have been denied a lot of those kind of um, events uh, for the last almost two years. Um, You know, everyone was obviously vaccinated, and we had to present a negative COVID test to get in, so it was, I hope, as safe as it could be. and it was also an exciting, interesting year at the Gotham's because they had done away with gendered acting categories. Um, there were a lot of tributes to like Peter Dinklage and Kristen Stewart and Jane Campion. The star wattage was high. And yeah, it was it was just a, a cool kind of thing to be able to do after so much time of doing nothing remotely like that. Yeah. I mean, you bring up Jane Campion, who was there for a tribute, um, but it was a big night for Netflix beyond her film because uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal, like, didn't really mm-hmm. didn't quite sweep, but kind of came close to sweeping. Um, th- it was a really big night for The Lost Daughter. Best picture, best screenplay, best director. I mean, it was really, um, yeah. And best performer for Olivia Coleman. Yeah, yeah. Or lead performance, I guess. So they had done... You know, the, again, the non-gendered acting categories. There was a ha- happens a tie for lead performance between Olivia Colman and Frankie Faison for the killing of Kenneth Chamberlain. Um, but yeah, but I mean, the Lost Daughter was clearly the narrative of the evening. I felt like every time I would turn down to my dinner plate, take a sip of wine, and look up, Maggie Gyllenhaal was back on stage, <laughs> um, which you know was uh, was huge for that movie. Which I don't know. I I kind of think. I almost wonder if Netflix didn't quite know that it had this kind of awardsy juggernaut on its hands. Even as far, you know, as recently as Telluride, I feel like they were kind of almost caught off guard by how well that film was received. I feel like I remember talking about that from Telluride and then, um, you know, other festivals that like the the response was so effusive because it's it's a prickly movie. It's not like Belfast, like a big, uh, you know, heartwarmer about family. Like it has very conflicted ideas about family, in fact. Um, But I do think it's, it's proving its staying power. It could almost be the complete opposite of a heartwarmer about family (laughs) Um, (laughs) in an interesting way. And I think that's what makes part of it so interesting to people is that it is a narrative that we don't see on film a lot, which is about not just, oh, it's hard to raise kids, but like, it's really hard and I kind Mm -hmm. of hate it, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, which, you know, it, it has a kind of if I were, I don't know. If I were in the Gyllenhaal's Skarsgård family, if I was one of the kids, I might be like, huh, that was your <laughs> first me. choice for uh, directing a movie? Okay. You know, women have to make choices, Richard. Can, uh, <laughs> I know. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we, I think we talked before and worth, worth emphasizing again that the voting body of the Gotham's has almost nothing to do with the Academy or SAG or anything. Like yep. you get noteworthy people, but they're very small, which is why I think you get interesting winners like this. Although it is interesting that you get a sweep when you've got different people voting on each category and all of them gravitate toward the same movie. I do think that says something like whether or not the Oscars will go for the lost daughter, I think is a question, but there clearly is a huge um, amount of affection for it. Yeah. The Gotham's are interesting because it's a lot of critics and journalists who do the nominating and mm-hmm. then the actual jury who votes on those nominations is, you know, a combination of filmmakers and actors and, and whatnot. Um, so you get these kind of two filters of snobby critics and then <laughs> more industry supportive um, people who work in the ind- more directly in the industry. But I think that um, so Coda, uh, Troy Kotzer mm-hmm. from Coda and Amelia Jones both won acting awards. She uh, Jones won Breakthrough Performer, uh, Kotzer won Supporting Performance. Those two wins... And the makeup of the jury suggests to me that, like, if nothing else, Coda 
is going to do well at the SAGs. Yes, the actors are could, responding to that movie. Exactly, which could then translate into Oscars. And, you know, I think Coda has been a big question mark because it was this huge hit at Sundance almost a year ago. It was the biggest sale ever when it, when Apple bought it. Um, and then it came out in the late summer and sort of didn't quite match that Sundance response, but I think it's been slowly persisting, um, and it's it's one that's easy for people to watch if they have Apple TV Plus, or they can, you know, I'm sure myriad screeners have been sent yeah. out. Um, but it seems to be lasting um, in a way that I'm sure Apple and everyone else is very happy with. And it's also something you imagine at the you're looking at your metaphorical screener pile now. You're like, oh, that one seems fun. Like that one's it's a pleasant watch as opposed to you know, the Lost Daughter or plenty of other movies that are more of a challenge. It has sad moments, but it is not depressing in the way that a lot of you know you typical awards films are. Yeah, I mean, we'll talk about supporting categories more in a little bit when we get to West Side Story. I think, but they are remarkably in flux, which is why I think Troy Kotzer's win was especially exciting. Like, you know, it's it feels too literal because Sound of Metal is also a movie about deafness. But like, if Paul Racy could get in, why? I can't Troy Kotzer get in? Well, right. And he, uh, Troy Kotzer is actually deaf, <laughs> uh, which had been some some issue about Racy's nomination in that category since since it happened. Yeah, although Paul Racy was a coda, which is a term I didn't know when uh, he was yes. nominated. And then, yeah. um, he, anyway, it's a fascinating series of movies to teach us all something we didn't know. Any other any other highlights from the Gothams for you, Richard? I, you know, I was just kind of like a wash in the whole experience um, <laughs> because it was, again, so surreal to be doing anything remotely like that. Um, but, you know, there were some really cool things like Reservation Dogs won a big award, which people were really excited about. And uh, the Frankie Faison win was cool. Ethan Hawke gave a lovely, albeit long speech, um, introducing Peter Dinklage's Tribute Award, uh, which was cool. Julian yeah, he Moore, won an award, right? Didn't Ethan Hawke win a TV award? He also won performance for a new series. Um, he tied with uh, Tuso Mbedu from Underground Railroad. That's a good. That's a good pair. Yeah, I mean, it was funny with these non-gendered acting categories that there were so many ties, and it happened <laughs> to be a man and a woman who won. But um, you know, I think that as a, as an exp- as a as a first foray into the genderless acting categories for a sem- you know pretty big award show, um, I think it, it proved mostly successful. Yeah. Well, I saw that um, one of the movies on your top 10 list won an award, which might be a decent transition into your top 10 list. Richard, you, you've been, I feel like you've been kind of struggling over it, which maybe is what happens every year. But was it especially hard to narrow it down this year for a top 10? Yeah, because I would say like 20 films were number 11, you know, yeah. uh, and it, it kind of, uh, look, to pull the curtain back, <laughs> this is all made up. <laughs> like, like I, I don't know. I could feel differently about this list tomorrow or did feel differently about it last week. But just in the moment that I, I had to actually write the thing, um, the 10 movies I chose were the ones that felt best representative of the year. A lot of depressing movies, um, but also hopefully some ones that left people feeling a little bit cheered about life in the world. Um, but yeah, Drive My Car, which was my number two choice, was the table I was at at the Gotham Awards. Um, I was really happy to see that movie um, pick up a trophy, especially because, um, as I said, Hamaguchi had two movies out this year, both of which are really great. Yeah, that's uh, not not a bad uh, track record there. Yeah, Ridley Scott's like, well, I mean, <laughs> you know, so did <laughs> was I. Was Lady Gaga in yours? <laughs> yeah. Um, and Flea was on there, too, which I was so happy yeah. to see because that was a Sundance movie that, you know, I... I haven't seen it since Sundance. Um, I was with Mass, actually, which is also on your list. Um, but uh, I'm so glad it feels fresh for you. And um, I'm excited to revisit it, too. Yeah, I was able to watch Flea uh, with my parents over Thanksgiving. Um, I I had already seen it, obviously, but I wanted to do a refresh before I wrote my list just to make sure that I wasn't wrong uh, all the way back in January. And, you know, they loved it. And I think it's the kind of movie that when you say documentary about 
people fleeing Afghanistan as mm-hmm. the Taliban comes to power in the late 80s. That sounds, again, depressing and sort of harrowing. But and, and it is certainly the, in, in the film, this story that this guy tells is is quite um, something. But it's animated because partly they're um, obscuring the identity of the person being interviewed, but also because there's a lot that just wasn't filmed, that this guy is remembering these huge events from his childhood and they needed some way to render those. Mm-hmm. And I think the animation really works. Um, but it has a, a really resonant humanity about it. Um, it's it's kind of, There are funny parts and kind of not romantic exactly, but, um, but, but maybe hints at future romance or anything, you know, it, it, it has kind of the whole of life's experience in, in the film. It's not just a, a sort of look at this geopolitical catastrophe. Yeah. I mean, some of the standout segments for me that I remember from all the way back in January is like two guys looking for a house with like a cat outside yeah. and like a very <laughs> cute cat or like yeah. a big pivotal emotional scene happens outside like a club, you know, it's, it's very, um, yeah, human and lived in, like you were saying. And uh, my second view, confirmed my basest reaction to the film, which is that I have cr- a crush on both of the cartoon guys. <laughs> I mean, that's a that's another essence of the human experience that I think exactly. is. Uh, <laughs> um, I mean, people will be able to see your list. Um, you mentioned that worst person in the world would be on it um, when we talked about it a few weeks ago. It's in fact at number one, which uh, I don't think surprised me. I think you were pretty settled on that one for a while, right? Um, yes. I mean, I, I did, again, rewatch it a couple weeks ago at a screening in New York, and that really confirmed it for me. I think that, look, could drive my car be number one instead of number two? Sure. But worst person in the world for me is so seamlessly made uh, while taking a lot of risks uh, stylistically and whatnot. It, again, contains so much of life. Um, I think it's hard to categorize what that film is. And I think that the thing that I've been and other people have been going to is like romantic comedy. And it kind of is that. But there's so much more, especially as the film kind of draws toward the end, um, where uh, the director, Joaquin Trier, is kind of saying, well, we're, we're, this is really about a lot more than just romantic entanglements and feeling unsteady about, um, you know, your love life in your 30s. Uh, I, I think he really is asking the audience to take stock of more of life and the time and, and how we spend mm-hmm. it. Um, and I, you know, for, for those reasons, I think it both it's a sad movie, but it also um, made me feel happy at the very end. And um, that counts for a lot these days. Yeah, I was trying to sell someone on it recently. I was like, okay, I know it's like a foreign language film that everyone loved at Cannes, but like, it's just, it's so accessible. It's such a movie that like hits you. And um, Bergman Island, which is at your number 10, like I feel like they're a really interesting pair of, um, you know, Scandinavian movies that um, feel like they might be uh, inaccessible. And Bergman Island's in English, but you know what I mean? Where like, yeah. mm-hmm. you're like, oh, this is an art house thing, but it's really, um, it's for everybody. If the worst person in the world was in English... It would be the biggest thing at Sundance, you know, like mm-hmm, it, like mm-hmm. it, it, it is it is a very entertaining, accessible movie. But that doesn't take away from its artistry at all. Um, I think it kind of has the whole package. And Renata Reinsva, who is the lead, um, is just so extraordinary. And um, I I hope that she, you know, has a good for, fortunes ahead of her for critics prizes and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just a really like it's a really it, the movie glows um, in a way that um, made me feel like I had to put it at number one. 
Yeah, speaking of Critics Prizes, um, this week you're going into the New York Film Critics Circle vote, so we'll get to talk about that next week. Um, yeah. And the National Board of Review will announce their winners this week uh, after we're recording. So the, um, you know, all this speculation is starting to lead to some some hard votes. Are you feeling anxious about having to actually pick a favorite? Well, being at the Gotham's and talking to some colleagues who are also in the Critics Circle mm-hmm. with me helped clarify things. You know, um, I'm not saying on, on the record that we have any sort of block voting scheme going on for certain categories. <laughs> You're whipping votes in the cloak. <laughs> I mean, kind of, you know, very house of cards. Um, but, you know, the, I, I have some sense of where I'm going to go, at least for the first vote. The thing about, about the way that the New York Film Critics Circle vote works is that really the first vote is the one where you kind of throw out your Hail Marys mm-hmm. and then you see who, who actually got votes and then you kind of have to be more strategic among like what actually could win. You know, yeah. um, if you're a little passion project pet thing, you were the only vote it got out of, you know, 40 something people, then you, you probably have to abandon that for round two. Yeah. Yeah. And then, again, like the way that voting bodies work. Yeah. I think as we go through talking about all these different award winners, we really have to emphasize like the way the New York Film Critics Circle Awards is different from the Gotham's, it's different from the SAGs. Like, and I think I think it's more interesting. I think it gets us a, a wider variety of of things to honor. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I think that that is one of the potential. Uh, joys of being able to do this is that like here and there a film that won't get recognized elsewhere will get you know some accolades from us yeah um well a last question on your top 10 after seeing west side story was there a moment where you were like oh shit i gotta throw the whole thing out and put west side story on there there was a moment while watching it where i was like oh god darn it <laughs> um <laughs> but no i think ultimately i think it's it's a really good movie but um there, there i had a, i had enough minor quibbles with it that um i felt secure in it not um having to be an emergency add-on to the list yeah but i mean i think the fact that, that you consider that at all speaks a lot to the strength of it because i'm pretty sure on the air we have been sharing some some skepticism about what it means to remake a pretty much perfect movie um <laughs> that one best picture and what has been been so fun for me like both seeing it in person and then watching people react to it on twitter is just like all of my fellow skeptics i was with them being like oh man they did it like they they really remade west side story and made it good like i'm still kind of astonished by it i think the most impressive thing about it uh, at the outset is oh he spielberg actually made the and, and tony kushner actually made the case for why this remake exists you know uh-huh. like like it didn't just feel like this kind of like well we're just kind of going through the motions and spielberg has always wanted to make a musical and so now he gets to do it in his 70s there is a real sense of purpose behind the movie which that's that can't be easy given that the original film is so beloved and you know kind of revered as this classic of of the form yeah and it's a sense of purpose that i think comes from the script that tony kushner did and i think if you were like wondering like what's tony kushner gonna uh, give to a story that's so well established there there are just all of these small changes that add i think a lot of depth both thematic and character wise to what the story is um and then the musical numbers like spielberg's directing these musical numbers in new ways like it's songs that you know that you haven't seen that way before they're moved around in the story they have different meaning there's so much careful attention to what you can do with this template to tell something not a different story but a a new story i think yeah, I, what I think they get in very delicate balance is they keep some of the antiquated mother loving and when the spit hits the fan, you know, they're, they're, they they keep those in the in the lyrics that Stephen Sperm to worm, we were yeah, all right. happy oh, to yeah. hear. Yeah, um, but they also they do dirty it up and they 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 contemporize it, you know, to sort of better match like what we're able to do on film now here and there. It feels. 
a little more dangerous, a little sexier, um, a little bit tiny bit more transgressive. Um, it immensely helps that it's not people pretending to be <laughs> Latinx. They're actually <laughs> people from that culture uh, who are playing these characters. Um, but it's not looking back at the at the original film and saying we're going to do this right this time. It, yeah. It's kind of honoring that, especially in the form of Rita Moreno, who's in, who's in both films and won an Oscar for the original. It's in dialogue with the stage musical, the, the, the movie from so many years ago, in a way that feels respectful, but also like, okay, now we're going to take a chance with it, which is exactly what the best revivals of uh, on, on stage do. Mm-hmm. You know, A revival is not saying we're correcting past mistakes. It's kind of honoring it and trying to put their own stamp on it, which is exactly what Spielberg, um, who I think kind of sheds vanity in this. You know, He's not trying mm. to prove that he's like, you know, I can do everything between Schindler's List and Jurassic Park and now musicals. I think he genuinely likes this piece of work and wanted to kind of take a crack at it. Yeah. I mean, it feels contemporary. And I, I worry about saying that and people being terrified that they're going to, you know, be like wearing modern clothes. But the way that it is in dialogue with like our current conversations about like white men is so fascinating to me. And like, maybe this is something we should save until, you know, more people have seen it. But like the way that it works, it, it it links the Jets to the, like, angry young white men that we have today in a really, like, careful and not heavy-handed way. And it made me just kind of think of this conflict between the Jets and the Sharks in a different way, which I did not think was possible. Like, I thought I knew that story so well. And it shows a certain coziness between those guys and the police. Yes. You know, yeah. mm-hmm. where the police are, you know get out of here you knuckleheads like they're 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 still they're doing their job to some extent when it comes to the jets but they're also giving them a lot more passes than they do to their uh puerto rican counterparts yeah i think it it, it kind of solves the cop problem but also brian darcy james as officer krepke is hilarious and uh you can have both in a a story and you can have like riff being this incredibly sympathetic tragic figure he mike face is my favorite performance in the movie um and he's one of the jets and he's like one of the most racist of the jets and yet he emerges as a character that you empathize with. It's really, it's tricky stuff and they, they do it well over and over again. I think we have to praise Mike Face for two things. One is that he's great in West Side Story. Mm-hmm. Two is that my sources tell me was offered to reprise his no- Tony-nominated role in Dear Evan Hansen for the film and chose not to. Interesting. And he made a wise choice. Interesting. Um, yeah, it did make me want to look up videos of that having seen the movie. Okay, so we want to we want to move on so we can hear David and Rebecca talk about Nightmare Alley. But with David and Rebecca, after we had all seen West Side Story, I think while you were in it, Richard, we kind of wrote our piece that's up on VF.com about our pretty high uh, enthusiasm for it Oscar-wise. And um, do you agree? Do you think that we're just drinking the Kool-Aid or is it um, is it really in the thick of it now? Oh, it's in the thick of it. Yeah, I think one thing that's going to help it beyond the you know individual merits of the film itself is that I think it'll do really well. I hope um, so. Yeah, it'll play well over Christmas. I think young fans who or or, or new fans who haven't aren't that familiar with the older versions of this story will kind of embrace it as their own, their generation's, you know, kind of version of this Romeo and Juliet tale. I think it, it has multi-quadrant appeal. And so, yeah, if, if it's able to kind of be one of the go-to uh, hits of, of over the holiday season, um, that will help it a lot. Um, I don't know. I feel, based just on the post, which did very well nominations-wise, I kind of feel like the Academy has a weird relationship with Spielberg. Um, Mm. And has for a long time because he's already, you know, he's won Best Director twice. Uh, He's won Best Picture. You know, he is obviously regarded as the 
American filmmaker of perhaps all time mm-hmm. uh, in, by certain metrics. So I think there maybe is a little bit of a reticence to return to that well in terms of actually handing him awards. Yeah. But but yeah, I think this movie has legs in in all different sort of categories between you know from all the way up to best picture and then down into technicals and with some acting in between. Yeah, the thing that I've gotten the most kind of um, enthusiastic about is Tony Kushner, who was nominated for Lincoln, uh, which I love, I love Lincoln very deeply and didn't win. Um, and I think his adaptation work on this is so remarkable. And you can see it. Like, I think everyone knows my side story enough to be able to see the work that he did on this. So maybe if they're feeling weird about Spielberg, uh, Tony Kushner is the one to to heap some attention on. Yeah, I mean, that adapted is a really crowded category um, yeah. when you have, you know, considered champions in there and other people. But yeah, I mean, Kushner, I take a little bit of issue with some of the changes that were made just in terms of who sings what and when. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's really only two examples in the movie toward the end. But yeah, otherwise, it's it's it again, like Spielberg, like Kushner is not trying to kill his darlings. He's not trying to be an iconoclast. He's just gently kind of massaging the text into something that um, it works a little bit better in the here and now. Yeah. As you were saying earlier about it being a hit, like I saw this movie um, with my friends who I'm staying with, our uh, previous and future guest Chris Rosen and his wife Case Wickman, and we just got to drive home afterward and like yell about the movie and like get really excited about it. And I hadn't had that feeling in so long, and I really want people to have that feeling of just like going out of a movie like vibrating and excited to talk about it. Yeah, and I, and I you know, there there was there was a stretch early in the film where I just found myself forgetting that it was 10 a.m. and I was had to write something afterward. And I, you know, I, I really like the world as corny as it sounds, did kind of fall away mm-hmm. very much like Maria seeing Tony across the gym. You know, <laughs> I went behind the bleachers with myself yeah. and uh-huh. just was like, I love this movie. <laughs> it, it, it really has, uh, you know, that kind of great old timey cinematic verve and it's transporting in a way that, you know, I love smaller, more inaccessible, more alienating things. But once in a while, it is really great to see something that is kind of big and populist and works uh, as as much as it does uh, in West Side Story's case. Yeah. Yeah. I think we'll get to talk about it more next week. I'm very interested to see how it figures into the NB- to the National Board of Review Awards. Like, I'm not expecting the New Yorker LA critics to like leap all over it, although you never know. Um, but I think figuring out just how huge this is, is going to be an interesting puzzle for us over the next few weeks. Yeah. I mean, I think there are some old softies and young softies in in the New York (laughs) film critic circle that could really embrace this movie and will be voting pretty much on the land where the things takes place, you know, yeah, in Lincoln true. Center. Yeah. Uh, I feel like we fall in, in the middle ground of the middle softies, maybe. I don't know if we're, I don't know <laughs> yeah. how young we get to be, but uh, we're, yeah, we're, fair we're, enough. we're right in there. Um, well, now let's, um, let's throw to David and Rebecca and hear about the other giant movie that is finally uh, making its debut this week. Let's hear them talk about Nightmare Alley. Well, Rebecca, you and I have seen Nightmare Alley. Uh, I think we both liked it quite a bit. Unlike West Side Story, this movie came in, I think everyone had pretty high expectations. Guillermo del Toro's last film, The Shape of Water, won Best Picture, Director, and some craft categories. Uh, This film uh, is one he'd been wanting to make for a long time. It's got an incredible cast, um, and I think it delivers on what we were hoping for, right? Yeah, I think it at least met our pretty high expectations, if not exceeding them in some respects. Um, I I would say the performances are really, really enjoyable to watch. Um, you know, I thought Kate Blanchett was especially 
really strong and has some really uh, interesting moments to sort of play with. So, you know, I could see her potentially in in the supporting um, category. But, you know, in general, the cast is just such a strong A-list lineup. Obviously, Bradley Cooper is the lead, um, and you're sort of, I guess we should kind of summarize what it's about. Um, (laughs) You know, you're kind of following his character as he joins like a circus group and, you know, where it kind of, hey, I don't, I don't really don't want to reveal much more than that. You know, he interacts with a psychiatrist who's played by Blanchett and, and as he sort of tries to climb his way up in his uh, profession he's pursuing. Um, it's really beautifully done as I wouldn't expect anything less from Guillermo when he's playing in this kind of world. Uh, and and to me, I think it, it plays really well. And I, I'm curious to see how it plays once other people see it. What did you think, David? Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's a pretty strong across the board contender. Um, it feels like with all of these late breaking movies, we're getting these bigger overall players that have a lot of craft potential, have um, a lot of potential acting nominations um, that could go their way, that come from filmmakers with more of an approved Academy track record. And they're they're changing the shape of the race, it seems like, every day this week. Um, and, and this one, I think, is definitely continuing in, in what West Side Story started uh, earlier this week. You know, I, I was a little surprised by it at times because Guillermo del Toro is known for horror movies and monster movies, including in, in a way, The Shape of Water, which won Best Picture, um, which would not, uh, you know, on paper sound Academy friendly. This one almost feels like it would be more awardsy. It's 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 really a noir, very faithfully working off of the original novel, and it, it in some ways resembles the the '40s film that was adapted from it, um, but also very much its own thing. Uh, and it has what I think is a, a really propulsive narrative. It's without giving too much away. It's kind of two films in one that tie together mm-hmm. at the end in a, in, a, in a really satisfying way. And 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 it moves really well. And I think that uh, in a year where we've got you know trickier in art house movies like Power of the Dog and and crowd pleasers, this one occupies a nice middle ground almost of like. Uh, a very artfully done, um, but very accessible movie. I'm curious what you think about its potential in the acting categories, because I agree that Bradley Cooper and Cate Blanchett are, are, are standouts. I also thought David Strathairn and, and Richard Jenkins were great among the supporting men, but both of them, their challenge is screen time. Uh, and, and Kate and Bradley, both of their performances kind of hinge on not revealing too much until really the last act of the film, or, or in, in one case, at least, you know, last mm-hmm. scene of the film almost. Where do you see these uh, various former Oscar nominees standing in terms of uh, how far they can go? I mean, if the best actor race weren't already so stacked and competitive, I would have said I feel like Bradley Cooper slides in there pretty easily Um, because, you know, the more I think about this performance, it's just such an epic journey for that character. He, as you said, it's, it's basically like two films. He you know, starts out in one place and goes somewhere very, very different as, as it goes along. And that's a, that's a you know, heavy uh, performance to carry on your back. And I think he does a really great job with it and has some really, really special moments in it, you know, but we're looking at a category that already has sort of as 
potential locks, you know, Will Smith, Benedict Cumberbatch, Andrew Garfield. And that means there's two spots that are maybe a little bit more up in the air. And, you know, Bradley is is not known for pounding the pavement of award season, right? He doesn't do a ton of press. <laughs> he's, you know, he's yeah. uh, I, I think he's deserving, but we're talking about such, to me, the most competitive c- category of the year. Um, yeah. So I think it's a wait and see for that one. And, and the, you know, the same with Kate. I think she's Kate Blanchett, right? She almost always delivers an amazing performance that sort of elevates any character she's taken on. And she also is in Don't Look Up this year. So she's got two things she's um, promoting. But to me, it seems like a wait and see what happens there as well in the supporting actress category. There's just there's just a lot of films and a lot of performances. I think we've been saying it more than anything this year is like, yes, the movie's good, but look at these performances. You know, it's just each film seems to have at least one or two really standouts that is competing in a category that's already very, very full. But, you know, I think, you know, as you mentioned, Guillermo ha- proved with Shape of Water that films that are a little different can make it in. And, you know, this film has a little gore and, you know, sort of that kind of thing that I shy away from. But I think he's he's so respected as a filmmaker. And I feel like this film could surprise us in, in different ways. Yeah, it's funny. I was thinking about Cape Blanchett because you and I saw it before we saw West Side Story. And I came out of that and I was like, oh, sporting actress, I I feel like there are a few slots that really are unaccounted for. And I could easily see if the movie does well, Kate taking one of those spots. And then we saw West Side Story, Mm -hmm. um, which feels like it could really conceivably field two nominees in sporting actress for Rita Moreno and Ariana DeBose. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And it's as these movies keep breaking, the path gets narrower. At least that's just our perspective, because, of course, these movies, by the time Academy voters are voting, all will be on a relatively even playing field. Um, but it does feel like Kate might have a tough time breaking into that field because supporting actress, to me, suddenly feels competitive. Supporting actor, I feel like, is still quite open. Um, but I don't know that this film has a clear enough, someone with enough screen time, frankly, uh, to be able to make it through. Yeah. Like, how, how far do you think this movie can go? I mean... I tend to think that it's a really strong effort from the guy who won Best Picture on his last movie, and that probably should not be underestimated, right? Yeah, I think, you know, we're talking about Guillermo is lined up with most of the same team he works with, and it's also with Fox Searchlight, which is releasing the film and released Shape of Water and released Nomadland. Like, (laughs) they obviously know what they're doing when it comes to awards, just, you know— and this is their big contender. Yeah, this is their big contender. I mean, obviously, they're under the Disney umbrella now, but, um, you know, they still sort of play in their own lane and uh, they know how to they know how to do this awards race maybe better than anyone else. So I don't know. Again, we need more people to see it and talk to more voters. But I, I don't think we can underestimate what this film could do. And similar to Shape of Water, right? It's it's going to be well-respected uh, and received by the crafts and those voters as well. I think it could get in, you know, production design, costume, score, things like that. And I think my general theory is if those other departments really love a film, then its chances in Best Picture are much, much stronger. So... 
I think we've got a, another strong contender here. These these late bloomers are really messing up our predictions here, I think. Yeah, I think part of it is one interesting thing about this year is you have all these movies uh, that were supposed to come out last year, uh, now adding to this already pretty competitive 2021 pile, um, and Nightmare Alley being one of them, West Side Story another one. Um, and it just feels like the season is, is getting a little overcrowded, um, which is quite uh, good timing since this is the first year that the Oscars Best Picture lineup is expanding to 10. And, and it feels pretty likely that both Nightmare Alley and West Side Story will, will be able to make their way through. I'm curious how much you knew about the story going in. I really didn't know much, and that was really helpful for me just in terms of like kind of running with this narrative and not having any clue where it was going and and just being able to enjoy all these characters and actors popping up and and the turns the story was taking and and seeing how Guillermo spun it. I, I guess as as we are talking about it and trying not to reveal too much, what should people not maybe mm-hmm. not expect going in or, or or avoid spoilers and things like that? Yeah, I think, you know, I went in pretty blind. I mean, I, I was aware it was an adaptation, but I didn't know much about the story. And I, I think that really made it enjoyable for me. I'm going to be curious how people, you know, who were fans of the book or at least aware of it feel about it. But I, th- I think the surprising turns um, and just where the story goes made it so enjoyable. And it just just felt uh, really original. So, yeah, I think I'm sure the filmmaker would love for us and everyone else who sees it early to not spoil it, because I do think it's just a really enjoyable journey. I feel like there's been a lot of that this season. You know, (laughs) don't say anything about this movie. (laughs) Yeah, I guess West Side Story is one where it can be pretty comfortably spoiled. Um, Well, and even then, there are a few little surprises in there. Um, uh, I I did want to say that with this movie, I think there have been a lot of questions about why some of them have taken as long as they have. Uh, Mm -hmm. And this one, especially since it had been mostly shot pre-pandemic, not entirely, but I do want to shout out Nathan Johnson's score, and that was the reason why it was held, was that Alexander Desplat had to leave the film for scheduling reasons, and they had to bring in a last-minute new composer, Nathan Johnson, who is the brother of Ryan Johnson and had uh, composed Knives Out. And it it's such an enveloping, um, transporting score, and it, it just completely gives you this evocative mood uh, that, that Guillermo creates uh, with the film. And, and I thought it was one of the best attributes of the film, and, and, mm-hmm. and especially impressive given how uh, Under the Wire it was yeah yeah that's a good point sometimes you know we theorize that these films are being held to be that last minute surprise of the season but this one was legitimately being held to be finished (laughs) so it is an exciting latecomer so david you would put it in the 10 for picture right which i think it's getting way more crowded than i thought that would be at the beginning of the season i feel like we keep saying this but yeah, I do. I mean, I, I think that the Best Picture lineup looks quite different from how it did a couple weeks ago before we'd seen a lot of these movies. Um, I do think a lot of them will end up factoring in. I would be surprised if Nightmare Alley is not one of those 10. Yeah, I agree. Well, it's just getting more and more competitive, so we'll, we'll have to see how it all shakes out. 
So now let's uh, go to our colleague, Chris Murphy, who got on Zoom with Halle Berry, who is um, making her directorial debut and acts in the film Bruised. Uh, and also, it's right about 20 years since she won her Oscar for Monster's Ball. And I think there's some really interesting reflection from her about that win in this interview, too. So let's listen to it. Congratulations on the film. It's so fantastic and it's so exciting. You've been in the industry for decades. Ever. And you <laughs> Yeah, I guess forever. And and you're finally making your directorial debut with Bruce. What was it like to get behind the camera for the first time? Oh my gosh. It was exciting, exhilarating, scary, <laughs> rewarding, all of those things. It, it, it was all of those things rolled into one. How long have you known that you wanted to direct? I mean, you've been starring in films, you know, for a long time, as forever, as you've said. When did you sort of get the directing bug? I think I got the idea that it was something I could do probably 10 years ago. I thought, I think this might be the second act of my career. It might be in my future. Um, mm -hmm. But I intended on directing a short first. I was, I, I, I had written a short about plastic surgery and I was going to do this little short film and I thought that would be my entry into my directing career. <laughs> okay, wow, that's a very big leap from uh, <laughs> plastic surgery to mixed martial arts. What happened with that short and then how did you, how did you land on Bruised? Well, the short just never got done. I, I kept getting pushed and pushed and pushed and I just uh, kept working as an actor and I just never... You know, I'd written it and I was all set to go, but it, I never really dedicated the time to, to do it. But I always was intending to, right? It's one of those things that was always mm. gnawing at me. And when this came along, this was just given to me as a script to be an actor in the movie, never to direct it. I never even thought I would direct this movie. I thought I just wanted to play the MMA fighter that was largely enough for me. It was a big, huge role. I'd have to spend a couple years training and getting my body into shape and learning all these, you know different um, disciplines, martial art disciplines, and that was largely enough. So <clears throat> I didn't even really expect to be on this journey um, directing this film, honestly. Wow. So then how did you go from just starring to directing? Yeah. Well, because once I, um, you know, when I got the script, it was written for a very young 20-something white Irish Catholic girl. So I obviously couldn't play that. So I, uh, Blake Lively had the script at the time, and my agent says, if Blake does it, then obviously you can't. But if she passes on her own volition, if she passes, I'll make sure you get a shot um, at it. And I knew, well, that will require me reimagining the role for a middle-aged black woman in a whole different world because the world that's on paper is not the world I can exist in. So while I was waiting for her to decide, it took her about six months to decide. While she was doing that, I was actively and passionately reimagining the character for a black woman like me and in a world that I understood. So when she passed, I had the opportunity to go to Basil Iwanek, he was a producer at the time, and pitch mm -hmm. my version of it. And to my surprise, he said, yes. That sounds like, yes, I say yes. Now, he said, now Hallie, go find a filmmaker. I said, will do. I'm gonna go find a filmmaker, I'll be back. <laughs> And guess what? <laughs> couldn't find. I, it's not that I couldn't find one. They were wonderful filmmakers. But the problem was, is the reimagining was only in my head at that point. It wasn't put mm. to paper yet. Like you only get to reimagine someone's script when you become the director. And as a filmmaker, mm. you often sit with the writer and you reimagine a story if you've been given the job of 
directing it. And I hadn't been given that job yet. So all I had in my mind when I sat down with these filmmakers was my my pitch, my story, how I saw mm -hmm. it. And I realized that none of them really saw it like I saw it in my head. Either they loved the drama part of it and thought, yeah. but does it have to be a fight movie? I don't really like the fight game, you know? Mm. And it, they were all women. I needed a female director. That was a caveat. Or they would say, I love the fight part, but uh, but do, do we need all that drama? Like, that's a lot of story. I think we just do a fight film. And I needed both. I needed mm -hmm. the story and the fight. So I realized after trying for a while that I was the only one that really understood all the components of at least the story that I had in my head. And it, and it occurred to me, a, a very good friend of mine said... I think you should do this because you speak about it with so much passion. You mm -hmm. understand it like no one seems to understand it. You love it like nobody seems to love it. I think you should do it. And and after I and I was like, are, are you high? <laughs> are, are you are you smoking something? Because there's no way. And and she said, no, think about it. Think about it. Don't let fear get in the way. Think wow. about it. And then t a couple of days went by, and I thought, yeah, I'm not going to let fear get in the way. You're right. I'm, yes, I'm going to do it. And then that's how it happened. <laughs> I decided to do it. Wow. That is really wild. Just it's such a singular performance in film. It's hard to the, the journey from Blake Lively to you. It's like that's fantastic. And it's and the film has clearly changed. You know, it had to have shifted and changed so much. Did you work with Michelle Rosenfarb on the screenplay to get it to what you needed it to be for you to star in it and act in it and direct it? Yes. And luckily, she's one of those gracious writers that was open to me reimagining her whole story. And so mm -hmm. I worked for almost a year. She and I worked. We were attached at the hip and we worked very closely mm -hmm. together. Um, and in all fairness, this just wasn't a world that she knew anything about, but I knew everything yeah. about. We kept the bones of her script intact because she had beautiful bones, which is what I loved about it when I first read it. But the characters and the dialogue and the setting and all of that had to be changed to accommodate this world that I had in my head. Like, for example, Manny in her original script, he talked a lot. <laughs> so in my Did version, he? he was rendered mute, just like Jackie becomes when he gets dropped back into her life. They're oddly silenced, the two of them. Wow. I mean, that's uh, speaking about Manny. I mean, uh, he's such a wonderful child actor. Um, and you have a son around the same age as Manny. Did you pull from your own, you know, experience as a mother, you know, when having these really intense scenes with this child actor? Well, I wouldn't say that my, you know, my life with my children are very different than the life that's presented in this movie that Jackie has with her son. So I can't say I used that. But what I did use is mm -hmm. my sensibilities as a mother. I'm a mother. I know what it means to be a mother. I know what it would mean to uh, not be able to be a mother. I know the pain that would mm -hmm. be associated with that, the guilt that would be associated with that. I also know that for a woman to leave a child, that's not naturally what we do. So there has to be a profound reason why a mother leaves a child. You know, mm -hmm. I think that's very different from men and women. I'm not saying that men don't have reasons, but you know, men historically have left families. Mothers historically don't. They don't leave their children for better or for mm -hmm. worse. Sometimes they should probably and give them a better life, but we don't. It's just not what we do. So I, I connected to all of those feelings because I, I am a mother. Going back to sort of the training process, right? I have to imagine this was sort of like a mammoth task. You have to train for this incredibly physically demanding role 
and you also have to act in it and you're also directing. How did you sort of train as an athlete or juggle training as an athlete, an actress and a director? That was probably my biggest challenge because the training for the to be the fighter took up a lot of hours in my day. I started training probably two and a half years before I actually started filming. So that was a lot of pretty much everyday training except Sunday off. Uh, probably four, five, sometimes six day, six hours a day, <laughs> learning like, you know, MMA, you have to learn all the disciplines. So I was learning judo, Aikido, Taekwondo, Muay Thai, boxing, kickboxing, wrestling, like all of these different disciplines I had to learn aspects of in order to put this fight together. Mm-hmm. And, and then I would spend my time doing that. I was also doing John Wick at the time that I was preparing for this movie. So I'd be on the set in Morocco filming John Wick, and then I'd be up all night with Michelle talking about Bruised and going over scene after scene and rearranging. And then when I got to pre-production, I was still in my fight training every day, but then I would go to the production office and I would sit with my production designer, my DP, and go over shot lists. I would go on location scouts, sit with my costume designer. Like all the things that the director does, I would put all in one day, but it just made for a super long day. I would start at five in the morning and be done at midnight. And I just did that again and again and again, because I was actually essentially doing two jobs. That's a kind of a crazy schedule, especially with John Wick. And you got injured on the set of John Wick, right? And then also, I read that you also got injured at the very beginning of Bruised. Did that derail anything? Are you okay? It's such an intense physical movie. Are you okay right now? It's I like, am okay. Oh, thank God. Okay. And you're right. I did. I got injured in the training process of John Wick. I broke three ribs. Mm. And that movie is such that it could absorb a shutdown, right? It's mm. a big movie. It's got a lot of money behind it. So we had to shut down. When I broke my ribs, I told everybody I'm hurt. I, You know, they found out. We shut down. When it came to Bruised... I knew two days, you know, we shot this fight scene first because Valentina and I, we were now ready. We'd gone through training camp together. We we were, we had done a weight cut, all that. We were ready. So we shot the fight scene first and two days into a four, five day fight sequence, I broke two ribs. But I knew that if I told anybody, they would shut me down. I would lose my financing, which was uh, teetering most days anyway. And I knew that I would lose Valentina. You know, she's the fly, the current flyweight champion. The fact that she took two and a half, three months out of her schedule to come play with me in a movie when she is the reigning champion, I knew I couldn't ask that of her twice. So I knew I would lose her. And to me, there was no better opponent for me in the film than Valentina. So, and because I had been training for almost two, three years, I had developed the fighter's mentality. So quitting just wasn't an option. It was like, okay, I'm hurt. I can't tell anybody. We'll be shut down. My dream will die very hard. We just have to keep going. So we, we just, I just didn't tell anybody until the fight was over that I was even injured. And then I went to the hospital, got x-ray. Sure enough, I was injured. But at this point, my biggest physical challenge was behind me. So then I could rearrange my schedule and put any other fighting that I had to do towards the end of my shoot to sort of give me my ribs a little bit of time to heal. So that's what I did. That is absolutely wild. I didn't realize that that was a real, you were going toe to toe with a real honest to God champion, uh, MMA. Champ, she's a beast. She is a beast. So to say that I got broken ribs, I mean, I think most people would get some broken ribs. (laughs) I, I want to talk, I mean, you've, throughout your career, you've never shied away from intense, traumatic work or, you know, movies that really go somewhere and that really sort of challenge the audience and that I think challenge you as an actress. 
what was the most difficult scene for you to direct yourself in? Was it the, like, you know, the boxing stuff or was it the intense emotional, you know, there's some really intense things that happened to Jackie in the movie. Well, the fight was really hard because it's just hard to shoot a fight scene in general, you know, so mm -hmm. that was hard. And to, I had felt a lot of pressure to get that scene right, you know, to really represent MMA and all of those disciplines in a way where real fighters would look at it and say, okay, well, yeah, I kind of believe that. Like, that was important to me. Um, mm -hmm. But I think the emotional scenes, like, um, probably the scenes that I had with my mother, with mm. Angel, you know, that there's a scene where I confront her about some abuse that happened to my character as a child. I think those kinds of scenes are always hard for anybody. You know, I think that was hard for the actress, Adrienne Lennox. It was hard for me. And we, and we knew that we needed to bring truth and honesty to these moments, but it's hard to say some of these things. You know, it's hard to, mm -hmm. you know, be free enough in these moments to let the truth come out. You know, and not worry about how you'll be perceived or what people will think about it, you know. Um, mm -hmm. And what I loved about all the actors is that I needed to have actors that wouldn't be afraid of the truth and who would just uh, service these characters and not judge them, you know, but actually find mm -hmm. ways to love them and bring their um, characters to the screen. So it was hard in those kind of moments to sit in the darkness and mm. do it anyway. You know, having seen you, you know, from BAPS to X-Men to these uh, really specifically made up characters in specific ways, to see you, you spend most of the movie with blood literally all over your <laughs> face, bruises everywhere. Uh, was that exciting? Was that challenging? Were you worried at all about just like the physical appearance on screen in the camera at all? Or was that just like, that's, that's who that woman is? It was so liberating and so freeing to just wake up and however I woke up, how jacked up it was, great. <laughs> I'm gonna use this today in every way. It was just freeing, especially having so many responsibilities. That's one thing I didn't have to care about. You know, I didn't wow. have to care about, you know? And I loved putting on those bruises every day. I loved stepping into this character of this woman. She was so real and so human. Uh, it was a great relief for me. That's all I can say. It was just a huge relief to be, uh, to get outside my physical self and mm -hmm. to, as a character, show that we are more than our physical self that we walk around in. And to tap into that part of who this woman was, was just one of my greatest, greatest gifts, which is one of the reasons I wanted to tell this story. Yeah. And something else that I loved personally, you know, as a hip hop fan and as a female MC hip hop fan is the soundtrack, which honestly becomes like another character in the film. You know, we've got Saweetie, we've got Cardi B, we've got Flo Millie, we've got all these amazing, you know, female MCs. When when did you know there was like, oh, we got to have all just like the best, you know, girls in the game on this on this film and only girls? Yeah. Well, I knew in the onset. Um, mm. When I was given the job as a director, being a black woman, I knew that this was an opportunity for me to tell a story um, and have it have a very female feeling to it, have it have a female gaze. And I knew mm. one of the first and most important ways I can do that is have it have a sound that only generated from women. 
that that would be a subconscious way of infusing femininity into this story and our point of view. So I knew early on that I wanted it to be hip hop because I know that that's the the music and the lingo of the inner city where I was setting mm -hmm. this story. And I knew that I wanted it to be all women. Now, did I know it would come together with the likes of Cardi B and Sweetie and her and, you know, young M.A.? No, but I knew that it was going to be all female hip hop voices. So when these caliber of women saw the movie and I asked them to be a part of it and they said yes, then I was like, holy shit this is really going to be good. <laughs> like This is going to be not only a backdrop of the movie, but it's going to be, I realized it was history. There had never been an all-female hip-hop record before. I didn't know that at the onset. So when I realized that, I was looking for just the, you know, the fabric of the film to hold the story together, but then I realized this was bigger than just the fabric of my film. This has something that's never been done before. I, I just mm. didn't realize that. It was great. It was, it was so great. And I got to say, so we've talked a little bit before this conversation about how you sort of had to fight, you know, even after winning your Oscar for Monsters Ball, you had to fight your way through, you know, through your career to, to make movies, to star in movies, and even to get this movie made, which is such a parallel to Jackie's story of being a, a fighter and fighting her way through life. Did you find any parallels between your, you know, your career and your life story with Jackie's? And did you use them? Did you did you push them aside to focus on Jackie? Oh my God, always use them. As an actor, I use everything that's available to me to bring whatever character to life. And yeah, the parallels I use, I've been fighting my whole life within this industry as a black woman, fighting to make a way out of no way. When I started 30 years ago, there were not nearly the opportunities that black women get to enjoy and experience today. I was literally struggling to find work. And even after my Oscar win, which is one of the greatest achievements of my, of my life, I still struggled, you know, like the script truck mm -hmm. didn't just back up to my front door with all these amazing roles for me to play. You know, mm -hmm. there was still nothing. And I still had to figure out how to make a way for myself. And especially in the way that I was dreaming, because I wanted to play roles that were diverse and different. I wanted to break new ground. I didn't want to keep playing the roles I had been playing, always mm -hmm. wanting to challenge myself like other artists get to do. Like, that's what mm -hmm. I wanted to do, not be pigeonholed. And those kinds of roles just didn't really exist for me. So I had to either make them, take big chances, do things that I thought were maybe subpar, but I have to do it. I have to try. You know, I yeah. have to try to. And it's also how I earned a living. I was raising two children, too. It was, you know, it wasn't a hobby. Acting is <laughs> also what I love, but it's how I earn a living, you know. So it, it, it's it's complicated. It, it got, it's very complicated. Yeah. I mean, it's funny that you say, you know, you have to do some things that are subpar because I feel like the younger generation or sort of even my generation is really, you know, gravitating and really appreciates and is like reevaluated and fully embraced some of, you know, some films that maybe didn't get the love that they deserved, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. We got Saweetie dressing up as Catwoman for Halloween, you know, we've got, it just seems like we're getting, we're getting, you know, you're getting sort of your flowers in real time, even though you've gotten them through your career. Do you feel that too? Or how does that feel to you? I do feel that. And it feels good. You know, never doing things to get flowers. I've never been that person to, you know, you, you don't know what's going to bring you flowers <laughs> or awards. <laughs> but when someone reaches back and gives you a flower or awards you for something or says, we appreciate you, we see you, good job. That's always a good feeling. But if yeah. that doesn't happen, it doesn't mean it stops my train. You know, it doesn't mean I don't stop working hard and striving to achieve and take risks or chances. 
Absolutely. And Cardi B, she's giving you the People's Icon Award or the People's Choice Award. That's a great, that fits perfectly with the film. How does that, how does that feel? That's amazing because she's an icon in her right, you know, and all these girls are, I mean, I know there was some like Nicki Minaj, you know, scuffle buffle, but the truth <laughs> is all of them are queens to me. I love them all. You know what I mean? If there's one thing I hate, I hate that these girls or that we get pit against each other. Like, we're yeah. all in this struggle together. No shade towards Nikki. No shade towards any of these girls. But to me, Cardi is a queen. Nikki's a queen. Sweetie's a queen. Her's a queen. Mm. Like, they're, they're all queens to me. So it, I meant no disrespect, and I, ho- and I hate that that was the spin on it, because that's just not true. All these ladies are amazing what they're doing. And these young rappers and trappers and hip-hoppers, they're doing what men have been doing in that industry, and they're doing it now for themselves. And I'm wildly proud of all of them. And I cheer. I want all of them to win and keep winning. Absolutely. You're one of the only celebrities that really is nailing social media and nailing Twitter all the time. Like it's so, like your presence. It's, it's so great. It's so fun. It's so it's so fantastic. Do you feel social media has sort of shaped has or the advent of social media has sort of, you know, changed your career or shaped your relationship with your fans and, you know, the people who are getting to know you in this different way now? It has totally reshaped my relationship with the public and with my fans. I have gotten to be my authentic self. You know, one of the things I used to hate about, which is why I love podcasts, what we're doing right now, what I used Mm. to hate about the uh, public relations part of what we did as actors, you would sit down for an interview with the magazine and you would talk about whatever you talk about. Many times we spent an hour, two hours talking and they would editorialize, they would cherry pick what they put in the article and they got to shape it their way. And it didn't always mean that it was a true representation of who I was or really what I had to say. And it was out of my control. And it and I got so bad, like for eight years, I stopped talking. I stopped doing interviews just for that reason. I was tired of the way I was being written about and these edit and the story that was being told and spun. So <laughs> social media has given me a chance to say things in my own voice in real time, talk about what I want to talk about and not talk about what I don't want to talk about. And it's not that I don't have an opinion about a lot of stuff in the world, but some stuff I don't want to talk about in the world. I want to keep my opinion to myself and my friends or, you know, my feelings. Everything I think isn't for public consumption, you know, but social media allows me to show parts of myself that I do want to share. And I love that part about social media. And I especially love Twitter. I've had fun. Late to the game on Twitter, but I love that I'm there now. Hey, you're not you're late to the party, but you're you're the you know you're the the most fun person at the party there. I gotta say, and I gotta say too, um, it's so interesting that you said you sort of like didn't speak for eight years because that's such a that's such a parallel to Manny in the movie and Bruce, you know, in terms of silencing yourself. So I just think that's that's such a beautiful you know bridge, you know, between you know Jackie's silence and Manny's silence and how you were like you know what you know protecting yourself in that way. It is a protection mechanism too to like not let you know. It is. And sometimes you do it because you're just stunned. You're shocked (laughs) and you don't know what to do. And I believe if you don't know what to do, do nothing until you know what to do. I got to say, wow, I think I think that's all the time we have. But Hallie, I have to say this has been so fantastic and illuminating. I mean, from, you know, Blake Lively to Cardi B, we we got it all. (laughs) We got it all. (laughs) We, We got it all here. So I really thank you for coming on the pod. And it was Absolutely fantastic talking to you. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for having me. I wish you continued success.
And now finally, we'll hear my conversation with Gabby Hoffman, who is in Come On, Come On, a movie that I love and Richard loves. And um, she plays a mother and a really complicated mother in a season of Complicated Mothers. And um, I had a really good time talking to her about motherhood. She has children herself and um, kind of how she brings that into her work and tries to balance it with her work. It's a topic that I think a lot of professional women shy away from, um, but she got into it in a really refreshing way. And um, I was really happy to talk to her. So let's hear that. What kind of feedback have you gotten from the moms in your life as as a as a mom watching this movie who's kind of obsessed with it? Um, I imagine you are hearing from many people who feel very seen. Yeah, well, none none of the moms in my life have seen it yet, but Ooh, um, they need certainly. To. Well, it hasn't come out yet. It comes out <laughs> tomorrow. Um, but certainly, you know, just walking the streets of Telluride and and the various rooms I've been in where people have seen a screening. Yes, the mothers have an especially kind of emotional response. But I'll say it's it's kind of across the board. One of the best moments was when we walked out of the first screening in Telluride and a probably 65-year-old, huge, like six foot five man who, you know, looked like he belonged at a football game, collapsed into my arms, sobbing. He was crying so hard he could not form a sentence. And uh, we just held each other for a while. And then we walked around the corner, Mike and I were talking, and two, like, 16-year-old girls came up, also with tears in their eyes. So, you know, it's really getting everyone. So when you when you talked to my coworker Dave at Telluride, you talked about reading the script being an out-of-body experience when you were talking to Mike. And I was curious just what that meant exactly. God, good question. I had no idea I said that. Um, I think what I was probably talking about was, so I had had this long, lovely dinner with Mike where we talked about everything, um, a little bit about the movie, but just about life and parenting and art and filmmaking and um, each other. And and so I knew I wanted to keep having that conversation with him and, and collaborate with him on this. And then I read the screenplay. And I think what I meant by out of body was that it, it felt in these sort of um, like emotional brush strokes sort of way, like something like a dreamlike version of something that I had been thinking about writing. Right. So I'm a parent mm-hmm. and it is what I do with 99 percent of my time every day, mm-hmm. all 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 year long. And it's the most interesting, rewarding, frustrating, wonderful thing I can ever imagine doing. And so it is what I think about all the time. And I've tried to write a little bit about it. And um, then then this beautiful screenplay lands on my lap that has so many of those colors and notes and ideas and feelings and questions and themes and um, that it, it was bizarre almost because I, I don't really ever get screenplays that are about the things in life that I'm thinking about. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it was like some incredibly well done cousin of something that, you know, maybe existed somewhere deep in the recesses of my heart. I feel like so much of writing about parenting, there's this trap of sentimentality that you fall into really easily. And like anyone talking about their own kids, you, you, you hear yourself and you're like, oh my God, that's not what I mean, but I can't get the right words for it. Is that what you found trying to write about something like this? That like, there are so many pitfalls in, in getting it right. And then, then this comes to you? Yeah, I had I I when I say try to write about it like it's not like I was trying to write a screenplay or anything. It's more just um I, you know, my own little notes about my kids, right? And and wanting to get down some of these 
moments in a day that are so pregnant with feeling that are, yeah, really hard to articulate because because of all the reasons you just said. And um, you put them all together the way that Mike did and you have this cohesive, beautiful expression of the entirety of this experience. Yeah. Is writing a screenplay or something just more formal, like something you've been pursuing or is it like in the back of your mind somewhere? Definitely nothing I'm pursuing presently. Um, <laughs> there's, I'm, I'm uh, very, very happy these days to just show up on set and do this one job and go home and not have to feel responsible for anything else outside of my own household. Um, but I used to, you know, I'm, inter- I'm just always interested in, in recording through writing uh, what's happening in life. I'm very bad at doing it because I can't ever find the time. But um I, yeah, one day I imagine I may be, have the, the, the mind and heart space to sit down and try to write something, but, oh, I can't imagine when that will be. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting looking at just like your IMDb credits because you were on Transparent and Girls pretty consistently for a while. And those are, you know, people talk about being on a TV show. It's steady. You go to the same place. You see the same people. And then those end. And like, this is really the first feature you've made since then. So I'm curious about what kind of surfacing from that was like and then how it affected the choices that you've made you know something like come on come on feels like a no-brainer but what what's that transition been like for you yeah I, I actually hadn't realized that it had been so long since I'd made a film rather than television in um until somebody brought it up in an interview for me I mean, girls, I think about very differently than transparent because I was really not there very, very yeah, much. Yeah. You know, it was like a whole bunch at once and then a smattering here and there. And it was always just so much fun and such a joy to go and dip into that world of lovely people and play such a fun, wonderful character. Transparent was really like, you know, part of the seasons of my life for five years. Yeah. Um, and I started transparent at the same time that I became pregnant with my first child. So... Really, the reason I haven't made a film in so many years is because I was working three months a year on Transparent. It was enough work to feel creatively fulfilled and to pay the bills. And otherwise, I wanted to be with my kids. Yeah. And unless something is good enough to take to that I have to do it, I'm not leaving home for any other reason. And this is the first thing that was good enough that I had to do it, you know, mm-hmm. that I not just had to, but desperately wanted to. Yeah. I mean, is that an attitude you feel like? is going to continue even as your kids get older. Like, I think when, you know, kids are younger, it takes a lot more hands-on, and then, you know, you hit kindergarten and it's easier to do stuff. Or or do you always want to have that, like, no, I'm going to stay really choosy until something really, really, really pulls me out? You know, I I try really hard not to project into the future too much because it seems like a big waste of time because, you know, forever and ever again and again surprised by our (laughs) lack of foresight on my own, you know, despite my planning. But... Yeah, I don't know that a 13-year-old needs any less than a three-year-old. I mean, sure, the the daily practicalities of, like, hopefully I'm not wiping their butt at that age. But um, you never know. I, emotionally, emotionally and psychologically, I think they may need even more um, mm-hmm. as they get older. So I am both very, very excited to be in this phase of my life where I really am interested in acting. (laughs) That's only been true for the past few years, you know, and um, it's growing. And that's exciting because I I really 
you know, I'm, I'm still kind of open to like, oh, who knows what I'll be doing professionally in three or four years or in 10 <laughs> years or 15 years. I'm open to it being something else. But I'm also really thrilled by my deepening interest in doing mm-hmm. this and also my access to good work, you know, which I, I, I hope is is growing. So I'm looking forward to that. And I, I do feel like it is an unbelievable privilege to do this with one's life, right? Like I, I was just talking about this in the other room. Most people go to work and they have to suppress their humanity just in order to keep their job, right? Whether you're serving burgers at a diner or you're a CEO, you know, or you're a lawyer protecting big oil rights, you know, (laughs) like you are, you are really, having a very limited experience of 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 the the incredibly deep dynamic experience that is being a, a human being and my job is to dive deep deep and deeper into our humanity and explore that and wow that's just such an incredible gift and i enjoy it so much so that pull is really there for me and i also feel like I feel like I'm just beginning to understand what I'm capable of as an actor. Like, mm. I, it really feels like I just started doing this to me on some level. Um, at the same time, nothing <laughs> compares in importance or or um, in um, the 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 experiential joy and depth of of being a parent, you know, um, and being there with my kids. So. This is like I had I'm sorry I'm going on and on about no, this but no. this is the thing this is the thing I think about a lot and I want so desperately to have these conversations with other people especially mothers but certainly um any parent in the business because it's it's a really tricky one you know and I I see these like round tables of actresses talking about making movies and stuff and I'm like but wait wait a minute how how were you in Berlin for four months when you have a 13 year old like what are the logistics of that like weren't they pissed off to be taken out of school or did you leave them like how often did you fly back I want to know how people pull this off Mm -hmm. in a way that feels good to them like um I want to raise my own kids. We, we don't have a nanny. We never have. You know, I, I want to be there. And I also want to be having this other experience. So it's a really tricky one, as lucky as it is. I, I feel like the luckiest person in the world. Um, I don't think there's any great time to not be home with your kids, you know, for their mm-hmm. well-being. Well, this is something that uh, a writer uh, who I worked with pointed out to me about Come On, Come On specifically, that you've got Viv in this like really nightmare situation with her, I guess, ex-husband. But there's a freedom in it and not being in the day-to-day involvement of her son's life. Like there's this sense of like of, like of putting out a different fire of kind of getting away from it. And that resonates really hard with me whenever I travel for work and it's like, well, this is hard and I miss them. But like I get to breathe and I get to do something different. Did that did that hit you on any level, too, of of just that break from it also being an important part of motherhood? Um, Yes, I get a lot out of working and I get a lot out of being in a creative collaborative space with the likes of people like Mike Mills, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and, and Joaquin and Woody. And, you know, it's, I love, I love being around people who are interested in, what we're doing here, right? Um, I am kind of like forever turned on by the 
questioning that making movies ultimately is, right? And the um, investigative nature of trying to find something that is real and honest um, with other people. That is thrilling. And that is very different doing it in that way on a set, making something, than doing it in other ways of one's life. So yes, I get the most out of it. I get the most out of it. Um, I also just can't bear to miss too much of the other stuff, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, well, um, I think you see that in the movie too. And you know, too. the thing about Viv, yeah, the thing about Viv is like, that question is, um, you know, this comes up a lot, like, oh, she's, she's not there. She's, she, somebody said, you know, I'm, I'm, the whole time I'm thinking, is she a, a good mother? Because she kind of seems like she might not be a great mom. She's not with her kid. Yikes. And I thought, huh, wow, you must not have kids because so much <laughs> of what parenting is, I mean, a lot of what I experience is like, there are these contradicting needs, right? Even first, just for your own kid, right? Like in this example of Viv, she needs to go take care of her son's father, right? She's not doing that because she doesn't want to be with her kid. She is doing that to make sure that her kid has a dad who can be a part of his life. Yeah. So that is essential. Um, but it's also true in like the smallest ways, right? Like my daughter wants me to sit down and watch what she's drawing and she needs me to be present in that way in that moment and I want to be. But if I don't finish making her dinner, she's going to be starving and have a meltdown in 20 mm -hmm. minutes. And then she's not going to get to bed on time and she's going to be a fucking wreck the next day. So we're constantly, as parents, you know, it's such a cliche, I fucking hate this word, but juggling, you know, desperately <laughs> trying to create this sort of balanced, harmonious environment for our kid first and foremost, but then that really means for the whole family, right? And then the mother, if you think of her as the kind of, you know, the son to the solar system of the family, um, I think Mike said that the other day, I'm totally stealing it. Mm -hmm. um, then where is her well-being in, in all of that, right? And that, that might mean being gone for six months a year working, or in my case, less. But that feeds and nourishes her soul and heart and mind so that she can then come and offer to her kids and her f entire family life what, what her best self. So it is, it's the trickiest thing in the world. And it's so interesting. And we all do it in different ways. And, and I don't think there's a right way to do it at all. There's just the way that feels most comfortable to each of us. And so I'm sort of navigating all of that as I now have, yes, a slightly older kid and another one who's younger. And I don't know what it will look like in five years, but I certainly know that it's going to be completely surprising and unpredictable. <laughs> and at times, you know, yeah, you're doing the, the very difficult work of, of, of caretaking in, in ways that you can't, could never have imagined and, and didn't plan for, just like we see Viv doing in this movie. Yeah. Mike talked to another one of my colleagues about, uh, we did a story about, you know, the amount of movies this year with uh, children in them, kind of children in the lead. And he said about, like, when there's a little person in pajamas on a set, it changes the entire, like, temperature of the room. Like, it makes everyone act differently. Is that is that something that you see yourself as an adult or that you remember from when you were a kid on set? You know, uh, Woody and Mike and I have been doing interviews all morning and, you know, every five minutes we were sort of riffing on this idea that Woody was by far the most professional actor on set um, and that Joaquin and I were just a couple of obnoxious buffoons. So um, <laughs> I, I, I know what Mike means, but I actually 
yes. I mean, of course, there is a tenderness that comes with a, a small person being present. But Woody was just is so he's such an actor through and through. And he is such an intelligent and present and thoughtful and lovely person that I, I it really did not feel the way that so many times I've been on sets with quote unquote child actors. We're all sort of rejecting that term today, mm. but um, you know, where they really need um, a different kind of energy around them. Mm. Um, Woody was, he's just like very much an actor who's interested in the work and yeah. doing it. Also a wonderfully funny, playful kid, um, which we, we all sort of were on that set. So uh, yeah. His performance reminds me of when you were a child on screen, and I wonder if you see that yourself or if, if it's too close to see. Um, that's incredibly generous of you. No, I don't <laughs> see that myself. I mean, I don't watch myself as a child um, on on screen, but in the, the few times, I think uh, many years ago, my husband and I watched Field of Dreams, which I hadn't seen since it came out, you know, and I... I was like, what is that movie that everybody is so obsessed with? And then it started and we were like, wait a minute, this movie is about back to the land or hippies who are having like strange stoned Bo- fantasies. Book like, burning debates to the school board. It's kind yes. of crazy. Oh my God, so good. Oh, Amy Madigan in that school board scene oh, is so yeah. brilliant. Righteous Fury. She's, she is so good. I wish I wish she was still um out there working a lot. Um, I don't think I will. I do not think that I was nearly as talented as Woody. I did not care about acting. Mm. I was not through and through an actor at that age like Woody is. Um, I think I had some basic natural talent, I guess, enough that I kept showing up on these sets, but I did not think about it. I did not care about it. I loved being on movie sets because they were fun, because I liked being around adults. Um, But no, I, I read nothing but falseness in my early performances, <laughs> to be honest. So and harsh. I think Woody is so um, just genuinely, um, he's very honest in his performance. He's yeah. very, yeah, so thank you, but no, I don't agree. <laughs> you say you don't like thinking that far in the future, so is, is there anything that you think of generally when you look ahead at all, like any slight shape of the future when you think of it? Well... I chose to have kids, right? So I have to be hopeful about the future. Mm-hmm. I just, I, there's no other, there's no other route for me. Um, otherwise I'll go insane. Uh, so I see this period of time. I sort of choose, I sort of will myself to see this period of time that we're in as the, the, the incredibly uncomfortable, painful, destructive phase of of this iteration of this world and, and this population as moving toward something that works a lot better for everyone. Um, so I, I, I try to imagine my kids, maybe I'll still be around, but my kids living in a sort of new world hmm. that is one that values all the right things instead of seemingly all the wrong things. Um, and I, I, I is at times, it's hard to see that given what's happening. Um, but I know it's possible and I choose to believe that that is where we're headed. I like to imagine my kids being part of whatever makes the better new world too. Like maybe it's flattering myself, but why why work so yeah. hard to raise them right if they're not gonna get us somewhere better, right? Yeah, yeah. And you know, I think anyone who is walking this earth with a sense of 
love and kindness and compassion and respect for one another is doing something to make it a better place. You know, whether or not they're innovating the solution for clean water, um, as long as they're looking at their fellow human beings with dignity and respect and love, that's, that's what we need. That does it for this week's show. You can find us at VanityFair.com, uh, writing about West Side Story and Nightmare Alley and Richard's Top Ten list and the Gotham Awards, and it's a busy week. There's a lot to read. Um, you can find us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen and on our own. I am at Katie Rich and Richard. Right, Laws? And David and Rebecca, you, you know where to find them. Um, you can also sign up to text with us at joinsubtext.com slash littlegoldmen or text 213-513-7035. I think after this week, we'll have a lot of questions about uh, awards, so we'll be happy to answer them. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best mantra to carry you through award season goes to Richard Lawson. This is all made up. 